The theme for the afternoon talk is duality, non-duality and beyond. <clears throat> the uh, teachings in the East, Vedanta, Buddha, Yoga and other uh, teachings have uh, engaged, I would say, in a genuine depth of exploration. And part of the motivation and intention there <coughs> was to strip away as much of the extra, shall we say, as possible. What I mean by that is to strip away all of the secular views about what life is all about and all that which we are told, to strip away as well um, all the religious views and opinions about life and the purpose of life and why we are here, and minimise the beliefs in either secularism with its emphasis quite often on identity, success, materialism, security and so on. And the dependency in the beliefs as well which religion offers for better or worse. And in stripping everything away as much as possible, we are then left, so to speak, with the very bare experience, with no easy explanations or resolutions to the human condition. We have stepped back from all of that with the wish to and endeavour to create some space and we have this capacity of consciousness that means to be conscious which allows and enables us to be conscious of the bare event of this experience of being human attending to it exploring it finding ways to understand what it is to be with no scientist and no religionist um, giving us a prescription and the yogis the, the swamis the uh, practitioners the nomadic sanghas and others felt there's something deeply important in this and in this bareness uh, of it all, some threads and themes in the simplicity of it begin to stand out. And this is what I want to touch on. So one aspect of this is that life seems to be something of a duality. And probably the most one of the most common dualities 
that means two's duality, uh, would be self and other. And understandably, in this commonly held view of self and other, because we think that way, we speak that way, we communicate uh, uh, that, uh, that way, we feel that way, it then becomes a kind of truth. Such as, the truth is, quote-unquote truth here, the truth is, I am here and you are there. And that is a duality. It seems completely obvious. It's confirmed, so to speak, with our eyes and with our ears. And we take this duality as one, um, as how it really is. And so our relationship to life, what we do, what we say, how we are, is regularly and frequently moving through the single view this is me, this is who you are this is the duality and this is what I am addressing and we're so used to it it becomes a collective truth it becomes the reality there. we also in the uh, dualities of this world that we participate in is when there is a kind of contrast between one and the other to take some uh, examples there with us we experience sometimes greed uh, anger, fear, whatever it might be. And then we also, in the duality of it, can experience, and directly first-hand, non-greed, which might lead to generosity. We can experience not being angry with, which might lead to kindness or compassion. We might experience fear, but that fades away at certain times and we find we can be bold, we can take steps, we can take risks. So within our being, the human being, there are these dualities taking place between greed and non-greed, anger and non-anger, fear and non-fear. And to know ourselves in this bare, simple world is what is it that I need to attend to when the mind state is problematic and what will change it? One can say of this, it's a great human undertaking, individually and collectively. What is the difficult mind state there? Quite often and mostly we need to name it. 
And in the naming, let's say, of the difficult um, uh, mainstay, <coughs> it gives us some opportunity to know what I have to work with. So if I worry a lot, if I'm anxious a lot, if I'm egotistical a lot, if I'm submissive a lot, if I'm blaming a lot or whatever, to be really clear where are our edges, what situations in our daily life and in our experience present to us the most difficulty. And that quite often takes, and this is what knowing of ourself is about, quite often takes a recognition of the event which contributes to the problematic mind state. Quite often, not always, there is a story in it. And in the story of the problematic mind state, there is the self, the view of the other, which could be the other, could be the past, it could be the future, the other, it could be the other, the place, or the people, or the environment, or whatever. So in a problematic mind state, there is a duality. It's not possible to have a problematic mind without a duality. It's not possible. It's, it's any more than it's possible to have a tree without wood. It's that intimate. So in the movement of experience, the self, which is one side of the duality, arises and it has an object which it is attending to. It's called the past, it's called the present, it's called the future. <coughs> it's called this, it's called that, it's called the other, or whatever. And in this duality is our life. Sometimes, with the duality that comes, there is no problem in it. I'm sitting here, you are sitting there, so far, first ten minutes, it's been no problem for me, hopefully the same for you, uh, etc. So sometimes, in the bare duality of things, we're not feeling any stress or tension, nothing is in is reinforcing the duality. Just We're here together, I'm here, you are there, very simple, and hopefully no problem about it. And the experiences of the duality and being at ease with it, to use the language here, the calming of the mental formations, being at ease with it, what it does, it is reduces the level or the strength of the duality. That's all. And when there's a problem, the gap gets bigger. The strength of the duality gets bigger. And it's up to us in the bareness of our human condition to be able to recognise 
And that's what mindfulness is about. Concentration, meditation, reflection. Is, as a human being, I can experience duality. I can see, yes, there is a difference between us. Of course there is. I can look at the differences, age and colour and dress and manner and all the other eccentricities of humans. I can look at all of that between us and it's unproblematic at times. And therefore, there's a duality, but one's okay with the duality. Not trying to get rid of it, not negating it there. And when something begins to happen and in the subject, which is you, which is me, in the subject, some other movement begins to take place, it lands on the object. And the gap, when it's reactive, gets bigger. And the duality gets stronger. And it becomes me, not with you, but against you, let us say. It becomes us and them. It becomes I know, we know, you don't know. And in that gap, and only in that gap of that duality, can fear, blame and anger arise. That somehow or other we have reinforced uh, a gap which isn't the influence of the past, that means our history, and there is a reaction, which means it is an action, let's say blame, let's say fear, let's say abuse, let's say negativity, let's say anxious about. It is a reaction, and the reaction is very simple. It is a form of behaviour which I have done before and I am repeating. And I think and I believe my reaction is to do with my present. Oh, no it's not. There's no relationship. Reaction doesn't have a relationship to the present. It has a relationship to the past. It's something unresolved. It's something not understood. It's something not investigated. And that is landing, in the Buddhist language it's called karma. That which is landing in the present, there, affects the perceptions, the view, and it plays havoc and makes life very difficult in terms of the simple duality of self and other, subject and object, me and you. It's history, unresolved history, impressing on the present. And we think our reaction is about what's going on in the present. It's going on in the past, either for self or for other. <coughs> With the uh, instructions um, uh, today, and um, uh, o over the days, 
there is uh, the sequence which uh, Ulla has been uh, sharing with you and just on the actual discourse uh, uh, itself the this person here the appreciation for the the insight and the understanding and the ability to explain in a process of what's going on in human experience. I think it is really incredibly insightful and precious there. And our experience can confirm it. And it's the criteria. So the experience of breathing in and breathing out will contribute with practice towards more calm and steadiness. It's a contribution. Our experience of breathing in and out will put us closer to the bottom. We will see pressures and stress and aches and pains. The quiet concentration which we develop and applying it to the object, still the subject-object dynamic, to the object, the pain in the, the, the shoulder pain, the uh, irritation or whatever. And that power of mindfulness concentration, calmness, can help to dissolve that. And sometimes, uh, uh, it really happens, uh, uh, it's just the proof of what I was just about to say. The, the person, a person, has a cold or a cough or whatever. And in the experience of the cold or the cough or the heavy breath or whatever, we sometimes forget, easily enough, that the intention has an impact on the object. The intention has the impact on the object. So, whether it's the pain in the knee, whether it's the blocked nose, whether it's the soreness in the chest, the intention goes to the object. And quite often, with the intention, when it goes to the object, the desire in it is for relief. But the desire for the relief, one coughs, one blows the nose, one uh, struggles with the pain, or whatever. Unfortunately, or fortunately, that in the desire for the relief, there is a certain relief, but the relief is short-lived because the irritation will have to start up again. And then one goes through the cycle again, and the cycle again. And the influence of the intention on the object, called the nose, called the throat, called the pain in the body, or whatever, the intention on that impacts on that there one gets the short relief and then gradually it starts up again there if we see this here and elsewhere in, in the daily life is it possible to be with the experience calmly clearly quietly focused and no intention to change it. 
Could it be? Could it be it's rhetorical? Yes, it could be. <laughs> could it? Be, <laughs> could it be that where there is an object and there is just interest in the object and quietly exploring the sensations or the tingling or the uh, itching or the agitation in that area that we quietly explore it not with a view to get rid of it because it would be temporary and to see in that quiet exploration whether it is possible to dissolve it? And the answer is yes. But it's a practice. And why is, why is it important? Not just for some silence in the hall uh, here, not because uh, it's a good thing to do, because it's a training to deal with things in life which the intention will not make any difference, intention, would not make any difference to. To address situations which are difficult and knowing the great challenge is to be with that difficulty and knowing this is how it is. Whatever it might be. So that there is not that old conditioned reaction. That the old reaction has done the same thing again and again. And therefore, that quiet presence of the subject, consciousness, mindfulness, meditation, call it what we wish, that quiet attention to the object called the pain, called the irritation, called this difficult person in my life, that that quiet relationship is able to stay steady with no demand on the other to change, no matter how close or how far away. And that's part of the practice. And one of the reasons for this subject-object and that relationship is in the propaganda and in the ideology that we are subjected to day in and day out, morning, noon and night, we have got so programmed in this uh, way, I could easily go on a rant about this for half an hour, but I'm <laughs> trying to be mindful. So, sometimes we hear a word so frequently that we actually believe it really has a meaning. And the word I've got in mind here, of, of several of them, the one I've got in mind today is choice. This word has been plucked out of consumerism there. And it's been planted into the minds of millions and millions of, of people who have been told you have a choice. And this propaganda, ideology, destructive, harmful, and out of accordance with the rhythms of life, 
is then put not only into, oh, you have a choice, you could buy a red jumper or a pink one or a blue one and we're going to manufacture every little taste that you would like while completely forgetting that the food industry is in the top five of all destructive industries on this earth. And we're told, oh, you have a choice. And then that choice has then gone from materialism into the psychological world. It's being used frequently. Every retreat I hear it, without exception, so I know how strong it's gone. And we are told we have a choice. It's a lovely idea. Quite forgetting the major of things of life, there were no choice. I Frankly, I cannot remember asking to be born for a start. I cannot remember asking to be born on that wet, cold, windy Brexit island uh, there. <laughs> I cannot be. I didn't remember it being asked to be born to a mother, and never ever in my life met my father, and so on. I didn't ask to be born male. There, didn't ask to be born thin. I didn't ask to be born with a big nose and ear sticking out like a trumpet, etc. So that's just the beginning. <laughs> I could go on and on. So here we are, we talk about all this choice there, and then all the events that happened to us. How many of those did we choose? Did we choose people to be horrible and nasty and violent and abusers? Did, did we choose to be traumatised? Did we choose to have our things broken, lost and stolen? Did we choose, did we choose? <sighs> choice. And then we are told in this fiction uh, there that when we're having a difficult time, moment, or experience or whatever it might be, these experts, quote-unquote, will say to us, oh, that's your choice. So somebody who is depressed or is, who, or is unhappy, or is struggling, and someone says, oh, that's your choice. Have you met anybody who says, oh, you're so right. Oh, I'll, I'll stop my depression from one. I'll just be happy every day because that's my choice. So there's motion, there's languages that there, and we know heart on heart when we're in the middle of a difficulty, whatever it might be about, the thought may arise there. I want to, I would choose, I would like it to be different from what it, what it is. I don't want to be feeling like this. I don't want to be lost in this anguish or in this story there. And the thought can arise, I should choose to think about something else. Or I choose to stop being lost in that story. Do you think the inner life is going to take any notice? No, I'll, I'll, I'll stop it now. Do you, think the, you know what the inner life will say to you? Stuff you. There's so much identification, there's so much this, that and the other, 
And that will be the predominant, and it will not be choice. The choice, that thought of choice, will not have the power to transform. Hence my protest about it. And therefore we want to look and say, yes, there is some elements of choice. They are very modest. They are a genuine contribution. We shouldn't rubbish choice 100%. 98 is okay, but not 100. <laughs> and, and say, well, choice is a contribution, but it will not be choice. I need to look and explore as a human being what are some of the conditions which bring something about. If so we're going to speak about choice, we're going to speak about the choice to look quietly and respectfully, perhaps with the good counsel of another or others, of what brought something about and that which has emerged, which has come about. If I can just change one or two things in that, the whole thing will collapse. To use the Buddhist language, it is dependently arising, is the technical term. So something which is dependently arising, like a house of cards, you just take one card out, another card out, the whole thing collapses. What is the change quietly needed, maybe one or two or three things, which will change the whole way of looking at any difficult situation. So the Buddha speaks of this uh, samkaras, citta samkaras, the activities, the formations which form together a state of mind. And then he follows on with that, with the relaxing of those restless, unsettled, agitated states of mind and one of those things which contribute to the calmness of uh, being, the calming of bodily formations or mental or emotional formations is presence and awareness of it what do I need to be clear about here what are the changes if I can't see clearly enough do I need the good wisdom and support of others? Do I need to find another way? So I can make this transition from restless, agitated formations of mind, speech and body to calm of mind, speech and body. And for some of us, that technical term, um, relaxing the bodily formations, could also be a reference that after lunch, some of us like a 20-minute nap. This is in the true spirit of relaxing bodily formations. And many others. Uh, uh, so in all... Gosh, time, I'm just warming up. The time's already galloping uh, along here. So sometimes, with all of this, as mentioned, the world of duality, both in its easy form and in its difficult form, is not always the predominant experience. It is, no matter how real, it is a way of looking at the world. 
I am here, you are there, etc. And there are experiences which reduce significantly that everyday experience of self and other, consciousness and its content, the subject and the object, this with that, many ways to describe. And therefore, some experiences, both in meditation, in daily life and spontaneously, move away from that and what is sometimes in the old tradition is, refers to a non-duality and perhaps one of the most common expressions of this is sometimes there is a real genuine sense of oneness not only oneness of the whole being which is lovely and beautiful but a real sense of oneness with life around. Uh, 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 <coughs> I, was, I, I like um, uh, taking um, photographs and then I pick out what I consider the better ones and put them into uh, albums and put them on Flickr, the dreaded Flickr. Um, and so at the moment I, there, there are around 15,000 photographs I, I, I do apologise it's not an encouragement to go and look at them or any of them but, uh, uh, so sometimes out of the image of the photograph in this case there's a short event around it as an example I have the privilege of um, teaching in the forest in Australia, subtropical uh, uh, rainforest. Uh, there, of course, ex-monk, a deep lover of the forest as well, and uh, of course um, somebody got enlightened under a tree, I can't remember his name, <laughs> uh, so another connection with the, with the forest. And one place, the place called just a few years ago, a place called Yarrahapani. It's a, a place in New South Wales, there. And before the retreat begins, we meet together there. And the first thing the manager does is to pay respect to the Aboriginal community and expressing our gratitude and our gladness to have the privilege to be on their land to offer this retreat. And the few words are said in Aborigine of gratitude and appreciation. Five minutes from the forest, walking, there is a beach. Not like Brighton Beach in England, which is stony and overcrowded. You go down to the beach and you look that way and you look that way and we could have been standing there five or ten thousand years ago and the scene would have been exactly the same you can't see a house you can't see a building it's just the cliffs the long sand and the forest you know it's garden of Eden stuff there and there's a woman sitting on the beach there 
I took a photograph. Lovely presence, lovely posture there, and just her, and on either side, must be four or five kilometres maybe, I can't remember now, over there, and she's right there in the middle, facing the ocean. Boom! Beautiful to see there. And sometimes in the oneness of these uh, <coughs> experiences, for her, I spoke with her later, of course, there, the elements and the human element are fused together. And what is precious about it, that, let's take the beach for ex uh, example, you have such a, we have such a strength of the elements, the ancient elements there. One's got the earth element, the sand, the beach, under the backside, under the feet. There's the air element, the breeze, the wind uh, coming. There's the heat element, the, the sunshine, uh, the, the blue skies and so forth. And then there's the ocean, the water element. And then there's the fifth element, uh, as the Buddha said, akasha, space. So you've got element, 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 element. Strong, powerful, like it's been for millions of years. And then one's got this other, the sixth element, along with earth, air, heat and water and space got the sixth element, which is equally important, consciousness, which is at one with the elements. Wow, beautiful, beautiful. And in that it's all the same stuff, so to speak. Even calling it elements makes it a discrimination. But in the bareness of the experience and the oneness of the experience, it's all the same stuff together and it's remarkable and the yogis the meditators, the mystics uh, there have pointed to the importance not, not, not ultimately remember, to the importance of these beautiful spiritual, mystical, meditation religious experiences we'll call it what we will not only for the precious thing that it's for our being there, but also t so that we remember the way I look with the dualistic view, whether it's a quiet dualistic view or whether it's a, a tortured dualistic view, it is only the view. It is not the authentic reality, it is a view. And these non-dual experiences, of which there are a range of them, I've just touched on one with you this afternoon, are really worthy of our interest. Really worthy of exploring and hang, having a, a sense and a, a love uh, for that. Uh, for, for, for that. It, it, it helps immensely to expand, to open up our life in a whole variety of ways. And as mentioned with you on uh, opening talk uh, uh, there, with the, the Dharma, it doesn't, shall we say, 
hold to a dualistic view, like I, nor to a oneness view, and therefore not to elevate it into something more than a view uh, which is named in the material world. And the invitation is, when the view makes too big a duality, watch out. That's all. Watch out. And when it shows itself in conflict, indecision, worry, pressure, we, the, the, there's, it means there's enough projection in the view to exaggerate the subject-object here and there till it's too big for consciousness to hold. It's too big. Or we get more identified with the view and it strengthens the view of the other. We, we, I've tried to keep this down to a couple of sentences. It will be a miracle, but I'll try. We are ex expressing increasing concern about Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, sexism, the patriarchy, racism, homophobia, and much, much more. And you and I recognize and appreciate that it's the construct of the self and other. It is discriminatory. It is for this or us or whatever, against that and there is a tremendous amount of suffering in all, all of that we were just uh, Ulla and I and uh, Peter were just talking today one uh, woman from uh, Germany has been giving support to the refugees on the boats she is the, the captain and the plight and the circumstance of these refugees was that there was danger for them including supplies and water and there's desperation and she decided that she had to get to the port in Italy there to give some support for the deteriorating health uh, of these uh, good people that she'd picked up. The Italian authorities, 31-year-old woman, captain of the boat, they've arrested her. Arresting her. Arrested her for her activism, for her service, for suffering people, have threatened her with a 10-year prison sentence and while we are sitting here in these days people in uh, Germany right from uh, the president and the foreign minister and especially citizens are doing everything possible uh, 
to uh, release her. So, so the situation, coming back to the talk with you, uh, there, and, I, and, and I, I think she's a, a credit to our species. And coming back to the theme of the talk, she, to do this work, because it's definitely a lots of high risk, friends of mine have been on the boats doing service, this kind of service, that the risk that is there, but the empathy, which is minimal sense of difference. Yes, as she said, I am a privileged German citizen. And these are poor refugees. And there is a gap. But the empathy is bridging the gap. But the authorities in Italy, or certain authorities in Italy, are reinforcing the gap. Understand? Criticizing, taking her to prison, into prison there, and the views towards uh, uh, the, the refugees. Certain authorities. And we, to come back to the point here, to find ways in our life to listen deeply and as when the Buddha was asked what is it that those who live with wisdom what is it that they all share in common that was the question to him what do the wise all have in common and he said one word empathy the confirmation in life of wisdom, amongst many of them, one of them is empathy. Uh, there. So in some experiences, we see the gap is big and the consequences uh, of it. And though, as I just did, use the political languages, homophobia, racism and much more, these labels, it's an important thing here, are labels useful, but as with the Dharma, we've got to get deeper. What are the causes and conditions that bring circumstances around that people view this way, create such a gap of us and them? And that digging outwardly and inwardly. And then finally, definitely finally, uh, there. Duality, problematic, quiet. Non-duality, uh, the range of experiences, the lovely meditator sitting on the Australian beach and uh, of, of, uh, of oneness, of uh, non-duality. And then a sense and a recognition there, that at time we can realize and know well and deeply we do not have to be dependent on any experience. Even though we give tremendous emphasis to it and and there is the potential to bring out much insights and understanding 
with these experiences uh, there. But the movement of life, the processes of life, with all these processes of life going on, we can know a freedom, and that freedom, when it's authentic, it's not putting pressure on the experience. And it allows a rather uh, creative energy, um, uh, empathy, and an intimacy, because there's much less of reaction, which is the shadow, and much more appreciation of action. And these teachings are a liberation of the wise, appropriate action of the heart and mind, the liberation of the voice to act, to speak up, and also a liberation of the body in terms of the steps, literal as well as metaphorical, of that which we can take. And when you and I are less under the pressure of the old, it frees up the being uh, there. And we take an interest in the small irritations of life because if we can't handle those it's going to be a lot harder to handle the big ones and they're around and sometimes a small irritation is our knee it's our ankle it's our tiredness it's our snotty nose whatever it might be and say we're going to take an interest in that going to explore that in order as in the exploration of that it gives us the skills and the resources and the ability to know how to deal with the bigger ones this is the laboratory <laughs> alright let's have a quiet minute thank you for listening <laughs>